The question that I want to ask this morning is, what does genuine faith look like? What does genuine faith look like? Is it simply intellectual assent to some propositional truths? I believe that God exists. I believe that Jesus is God. I believe that Jesus died for my sins. Is it just intellectual agreement that those things are true? Is that what genuine faith is? If it is, then, then perhaps Jesus has just succeeded. If we look at verse 30, after Jesus is teaching about who he is, he says he's the light of the world, okay? He says, when you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he. And then in verse 30, it says, as he was saying these things, many people believed in him. Many people believed in him. Is that success? Is this the time to celebrate? Is it time to get out the baptismals and start dunking people? Is this the time to celebrate that Jesus has has gotten through and they believe who he is? Or is it possible that this would be an early celebration? I like uh, on YouTube, they have these videos. YouTube has videos. They have these specific uh, videos about um, sports players that celebrate too early. I don't, I don't know if you've watched, I would recommend that you search that and, and, and watch them because they're, they're hilarious. And uh, they teach a moral, right? And there's this one where it's an NFL game, Pittsburgh versus Chicago. And Chicago just blocks uh, a field goal attempt by Pittsburgh. And, they, and this guy starts returning it back. And he's like wide open, running down the field, 50 to the 40 to the 30. And the announcer's like, oh, the, 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 the Bears are going to get a touchdown out of this. And he goes 30, and he starts slowing down, 20, 10, 5, almost to a complete stop, but the defense is not slowing down. They come up behind him, and just before he crosses the goal line, they tackle him. He fumbles the ball. He gets thrown down on his butt, and he's putting up his hands like, touchdown. <laughs> and the rest are like, no, you fumbled, and you lost the ball. <laughs> this is not a touchdown. And the moral of the story is don't celebrate too early, right? You know, he, he was expecting the touchdown. Even the announcers were expecting the touchdown, but he had not yet crossed the goal line. He had to continue to get the touchdown. Question is, what's the touchdown for Jesus? What's the touchdown for the Jewish leaders and, and the crowds that are around Jesus? Is it verse 30? As he was saying these things, many people believed in him. Is that the touchdown? You might be tempted to think so. But as we're going to see, this is far from the touchdown, and Jesus knows it. And so this is not Jesus. This passage is not Jesus' touchdown dance. He's not celebrating yet. He can see through their hearts, and he knows that what they have, what they're expressing, is not genuine faith. And so Jesus is going to tell us, what is genuine faith? 
and he's going to start with this point. The first point is that genuine faith is more than just a profession of faith. It is a continuance in his word. That genuine faith always results in continuing in his word. You can't just say, I have genuine faith and it's true. And so that's the the first point is that genuine faith always results in continuing in Jesus' word. Let me read verse 31. Then Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, If you continue in my word, you really are my disciples. If you continue in my word, you really are my disciples. Now notice, Jesus is talking to the Jews who had believed. He's not talking to people who have not yet believed. He's talking, he's turning his attention to the ones who have expressed belief. And he's saying to them, only those who continue in my word are truly my disciples. The touchdown, if you will, is in continuing or perseverance. It's continuing to hold on to the words of Jesus. Now, they haven't had the opportunity to do that, right? They just believe. But, but Jesus is seeing into their hearts. He's seeing the fact that they, they lack something. And it's gonna, he's going to unpack what they're lacking as we go through it. But continuing is very important understanding what genuine belief is. My brother and I grew up in the same home. My brother's a year and a half younger, year and a half years younger. And we were both taught the same faith by our mom. We both, at a young age, would have professed belief in Jesus. We would have said, yes, we're true believers. But over the years, I continued to walk in belief. I continue to walk and trust in Jesus. But my brother, he did not. He went a different route. And in fact, today he would say, I don't, I don't even like Jesus. Like, I'm, I'm actually antagonistic towards the concept of Jesus. He doesn't even believe Jesus really existed. And so continuous in the faith, even though we both said in early age, I, we, we profess belief Jesus says, only those who continue in his word are truly his disciples. According to Jesus, my brother did not have genuine faith. Some people think that they're saved because they said a prayer at some point in their life. And that that's binding. It has some magical binding that, okay, I said the prayer, and it doesn't matter what I think or what I believe or how I live. I believe that prayer did something. And Jesus just rejects that notion. You didn't just pray a prayer and that saved you. That's that's what Jesus is saying. Continuing in his word reveals who his true disciples are. It's more than just holding on to a belief, but it's holding on to a way of life that you've come to accept as true and that life is now shaped by that truth. It looks different. And so we're going to unpack what this means. Jesus describes this different life as being one that is freed from slavery. Let's continue, verse 32. He says, Jesus says, You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. 
you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Jesus assumes that we're not free. He assumes that we're in slavery. And therefore, we need something to free us from that slavery, namely the truth. Uh, But the problem is we assume that we are free. We're not slaves. That's, That's the The crowd's response in verse 33, they say, We are descendants of Abraham, they answered him, and we have never been enslaved to anyone. How can you say you will become free? Number one, that's wrong. They're expressing ethnic pride. They've been enslaved to Egypt. They've been enslaved to Babylon. They've been enslaved to Persia. And now they're enslaved to Rome. So it's, it's, it's not true. But they have this ethnic pride. We're descendants of Abraham. We've never been enslaved to anyone. How can you say uh, we will be made free? And, and I wonder if, if we are also tempted to do that today. It may not be descendants of Abraham, but we could say we're Americans. Right? We've never been enslaved to anyone. How can you say we need to be free? Like we're the boss of this world. We're on top. Why do we need to be made free? And Jesus gives us the answer. It's not about uh, earthly uh, uh, oppression. He's talking about something spiritual. He says in verse 34, Truly I tell you, everyone who commits sin is a slave of sin. Everyone who commits sin is a slave of sin. How many of you have committed sin? How many of you are slaves to sin? That's what Jesus is saying. Jesus is making the point that the slavery is a spiritual slavery as a result of of being bound to sin. This is the critical condition of humanity. The Bible talks of something called sin. It's it's when we break God's laws. And we, we understand that we live in a country that has laws. If you break those laws, you commit a crime. And you suffer the consequences. Well, we live in God's universe. He's the king. He makes the laws. And if we break his laws, we commit sin and deserve the consequences thereof. So it's not a question of if there is sin. It's a question of what do we do with sin? What do we do with this sin problem? And there's four ways that at least four ways that we tend to deal with sin, and all of them are slavery. All of them are slavery. Number one, the first thing that we often try to do with sin is we redefine sin. We redefine sin. We convince ourselves that something is not really sinful when it is. I think here in in, in America, a lot of times we do this with greed. We say we redefine it so that it's not sin. I did this when I was 20 years old. That's what I did. I called it ambition. I called it entrepreneurial spirit. I called it uh, pursuit of excellence. I rationalized it by saying I want to be rich so that I can give money away. But the reality is I wanted to enrich myself. And I was greedy for those riches. But that doesn't sound good. And so I called it something else. We redefine sin so that it sounds good to others and it sounds good to ourselves. Secondly, if we can't redefine it, we might minimize it. We might minimize sin. We say, you know what? Okay, I acknowledge that it might be a little bit of a problem, but you know what? It's it's just a small thing. Uh, You know what? Uh, Actually, everyone does it. 
or I don't do it as much as the next person, right? We minimize it. So we acknowledge, yeah, okay, it's maybe not the best thing, but at least I'm not that person, or at least I don't do it that much, or hey, I'm in good company, right? If we can't minimize it, if we do acknowledge that sin is what it is, that that God says that it is serious, that the consequences of sin is death, then sometimes we, we might conquer it. We might conquer sin. So this is when we say, okay, sin is real. I'm just going to muscle up my strength, and I'm going to slay these sin things in my life. I'm just going to muster up the strength to, uh, uh, to dominate it. And it's funny, when I, I see this a lot when I look at my journal that I've kept. Uh, I look back at my journal. I said, you know what? I'm going to keep a journal every single day for the rest of my life. And I look back so often on that journal, I'll go, uh, I'll see, I'll keep the journal every single day. And I go, day one, day two, day three, day four, two months later, I say it again. I'm going to keep a journal. This is the time now where I'm going to keep the journal every single day of my life. The next day, the next day, five months later, this is the time. Right? And so we say we have things like resolutions, right? We say things like, like, I'll never do that again. Or we say, or we say, so we say these things thinking that in our own strength we can overcome sin. And that's the third way. And it's still slavery because we realize we don't have the strength to do it. And so over and over and over and over again we fail. And then finally we might get to a point where we try to handle it. The fourth way is where we despair of sin. We despair of sin. We've gone through the motions. We've gone through the techniques, the strategies, the tactics. And we finally got into a point where we, we acknowledge that, yeah, this is not good. This is not a healthy place for me. And yet I cannot overcome it. And so we sit in despair. We give up. We say, woe is me. And we feel the weight of the shackles. And so no matter which way you approach sin, all of these ways are slavery. All of these ways leave us bound and shackled. Jesus says that anyone who sins is a slave to sin. He's saying that there is a need for us to be free and that freedom comes through truth. That freedom comes from truth. Not just profession, but walking Step by step, in acceptance of that truth, in obedience of that truth. Now, this should be a troubling statement. Jesus is saying that the path to freedom from sin and disobedience is to know the truth. Okay? But the truth only comes... When we continue in his word. In other words, what we're enslaved to, sin, disobedience, is only freed by a truth that comes from obedience. We need to obey to free ourselves from slavery to disobedience. There's a paradox, there's a conundrum that we're in. The the very thing that we need to save ourselves is the very thing we cannot do. How is that resolved? We'll get to that later in the message. 
before that, I want to move on to the second point. Genuine faith always results, always results in continuing in his word. But we face a barrier to that. And that barrier, Jesus is going to describe as a tale of two fathers. There's one father who prevents us from having genuine faith, and there's another father who will, uh, who will make sure that we have genuine faith. So let's go to the second point. The second point is that genuine faith is impossible when we have the wrong father. Genuine faith is impossible when we have the wrong father. Let me actually read um, verses 37 and 38 uh, to set this up. Verse 37. I know you are descendants of Abraham. This is Jesus speaking. But you are trying to kill me because my word has no place among you. I speak what I have seen in the presence of the father. So then you do what you have heard from your father. And so he's saying that, that I do basically what my father does, but you do what your father does. He's saying you have a different father than I do. That's what he's saying. Who is this father? That's what Jesus is going to articulate. First, the crowd responds to Jesus' accusation. So Jesus is starting to accuse him. You don't have the right father. Okay, how do they respond? Verse 39, they say, our father is Abraham, they replied. Our father is Abraham. And Jesus replies to them. He says, if you were Abraham's children, Jesus told them, you would do what Abraham did. If you were Abraham's children, you would do what Abraham did. In verse 37, Jesus already admitted that they were descendants of Abraham. He's not questioning their blood lineage. He's questioning their spiritual lineage. Their spiritual heritage. Have you ever heard the, the saying, uh, he is his father's son? And that saying, uh, it, it means that the son resembles his father, not, not just in appearance, but in behavior, right? Someone, you see someone behave a certain way, like I behave a certain way in my stubbornness. And, and, and someone can say to me, he is his father's son, And so there's a a behavior that Jesus is saying that's indicative of who your father is. And and these, he's basically saying, you guys are not doing the works of your father, therefore your father is not really Abraham, not from a spiritual standpoint. If, If he were, then you would do the works that Abraham did. Instead, Jesus says in verse 41, you're doing what your father does. Who then is their spiritual father? Jesus does not pull any punches. He says, verse 42, Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me because I came from God and I am here. For I didn't come on my own, but he sent me. Why don't you understand what I say? Because you cannot listen to my word. You are of your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desires. Jesus speaks crystal clear. He says that their father is the devil or Satan, however you want to name him. That is who their father is. Now, these would be fighting words. These are fighting words for them. Now, in our day, right, as a kid growing up, you, you don't talk about other people's mama, right? 
I don't talk about my mama that way. Those would be fighting words. In their day, it was their dad. Don't talk about my dad that way. And it was really important for the Jewish people to understand who their dad was so they could trace their lineage, so they, they could root themselves in the people of God and to question who their father was, to question who their daddy was, was to question their very place amongst God's chosen people. Those are fighting words Jesus is articulating. Your father is the devil. It's on. It's on at this point. Jesus is not talking about ethnic heritage. He's talking about spiritual heritage. How does he, why is he identifying the devil as their father? He tells us why. Verse, the second part of verse 44. He says, after he says, you're carrying out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, speaking of the devil. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he tells a lie, he speaks from his own nature because he is a liar and the father of lies. So what he's saying is, I'm seeing in you the attributes of the devil. I'm seeing lies and I'm seeing murder. And how is he seeing this? They're telling themselves a lie, basically. They're saying, you know what? We're descendants of Abraham, and therefore we're good. We don't need your truth. We don't need your salvation. We already have our salvation because we have Abraham, who's our, who's our blood father, our ethnic heritage. And that's a lie. That's a lie from the enemy who says, you're good because you're the right race, or you're good because you're in the right country, or you're good because you have the right economic status, or you're good because you have the right social status. All these things are lies. And Jesus threatens to interrupt that worldview. And because Jesus is threatening to interrupt the worldview that they place their hope in, they, say, they see Jesus as a threat. And the deeper that they believe those lies, the more that they see Jesus as a threat. And so it's not a big jump for them to want to kill him. Jesus is interrupting their world. He's basically everything you believed about what got you here, about what gives you comfort, about what gives you salvation, what gives you hope is wrong. You need me. And they see that as a threat. So Jesus says accurately that your father is the devil because you believe in lies and now you want to kill me. And look, they they don't admit to that yet. He knows that they want to kill him and they will try to kill him by the end of this conversation. Their true colors come out. Jesus says this is indicative that your father is not my father. He makes it crystal clear in verse 47. Jesus says to them, if God were your father, you would love, or sorry, verse 47. The one who is from God listens to God's words. This is why you don't listen, because you are not from God. You are not from God. Genuine faith is impossible if you have the wrong father. You can't hear. You're not of God. You cannot hear. 
Jesus himself, Jesus is the best Bible teacher who ever lived. He's not making any mistakes in how he's communicating his truth. They still don't believe. It's not anything that Jesus didn't say right or wrong. They couldn't believe because they were not from God. They had the wrong father. Question is, how do we get the right father? How do we get from a place of blindness to a place of sight? To where we can actually see and hear the words from the true father and then begin to walk in obedience. Let's continue. The third point is genuine faith is inevitable when we have the right father. Verse 48. The Jews responded to him. Aren't we right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Okay. Um, they're not arguing based on reason anymore at this point. Like their true colors have come out. When they say, are we not right that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? That's not like rational. That's not like, let's come to the table and let's talk through your points and we'll see together if we can find the right way. At this point, they, they're given up. They're mad at Jesus and they're, they're cursing him basically. A Samaritan no one would, no Jew would have wanted to be a Samaritan. They're half-breeds. They believe the wrong thing. They're like wacko. They're from some city we don't care about. And so to call, G- they know Jesus is not a Samaritan. So it's just being used as an attack word at this point. They know Jesus is not filled with a demon. It's just being used to attack him. They're trying to make him mad. Are you not a Samaritan and a demon? And, and Jesus responds, Verse 49, very simply, I I do not have a demon, Jesus answered. On the contrary, I honor my Father, and you dishonor me. I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it and judges. Truly, I tell you, if anyone keeps my word, he shall never see death. That last statement is remarkable. If anyone keeps my word, he shall never see death it's a very powerful statement. It's a very almost arrogant statement. If you're in the Jewish, Jew's position watching him, you see this man who, who is just riling you up, who's, who's telling you everything you ever did, everything you knew about religion is wrong, it needs to be flipped upside down, and he's saying to you, if you keep my words, you will never taste death. It's a very bold claim. And what he's saying couple things. One, it's not surprising that we all die. We know that death is our death. We know that we we go to the grave at some point. But but to say that we will never taste death, that we will never taste death if we keep his word is is mind-boggling. It's incredible. Incredible statement. And they understand that that's an incredible statement. And they're confused because in Jesus saying that, he's, he's by default elevating himself up above their, their hall of fame sort of religious leaders that they've followed. And so that's their response. You can see their response to, that, to Jesus' words. They say, now we know you have a demon. Verse 52. Abraham died and so did the prophets. You say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death? Are you greater than our father Abraham, who died? 
and the prophets died? Who do you claim to be? This is a pretty convincing statement, right? If I'm sitting there and they're telling this to me, I'm like, yeah, Abraham did die. Yeah, the prophets did die. And they're pretty great. Like, they're pretty up there. And Jesus is basically saying in his statement that I'm above them. Like, what is Jesus going to say? This is like, this is like their opportunity where they finally shoot down Jesus' argument. Like, no, you, you know you can't go there. You can't go above Abraham. You can't go above the prophets. And Jesus says, oh, yes, I can. And that's what he does. Verse 54. If I glorify myself, Jesus answered, my glory is nothing. My father, about whom you say he is our God, he is the one who glorifies me. You do not know him, but I know him. If I were to say I don't know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him, and I keep his word. I'll pause there. Jesus says, I do know him, and I keep his word. And what he's doing, he's connecting this idea. And this is what he's been doing really through, throughout this passage. He's connecting this idea of knowing the Father, the true heavenly Father, and keeping his word. Jesus knows the Father, and he keeps his word. And so that connection is made. If we know the true Father, then we keep his word. If we know the Father, we hear his word. We need the right Father, is what Jesus is saying implicitly. We need the right Father. Jesus is basically saying that that they are blind to God. They're liars. In verse 42, earlier he said, If God were your father, you would love me because I came from God and I am here. For I didn't come on my own, but he sent me. Because they don't love him, they know, he knows that they are not following his father. Question then is, how do we have the right father? How do we get into right relationship with the true heavenly father so that we would be able to hear his word, so that we would be able to receive his truth, so that we would be able to keep his word. Jesus is going to continue to unpeel layers of revealing who he is. He does more so in verse 56. He says, Your father, Abraham, rejoiced to see my day. He saw it and was glad. That's a puzzling statement. Jesus is still a young man. Abraham had lived way, way, way before that. To say that he saw Abraham and that Abraham saw him was something that obviously would demand a response from them. And and he gets the response. They respond as probably we would respond. That's impossible, right? Verse 57 The Jews replied, you aren't 50 years old yet, and you've seen Abraham? And then Jesus responds with one of the most remarkable statements, I think, in all of the Bible. A true mic drop moment, if you will. It says in verse 58, 
Jesus said to them, Truly I tell you, before Abraham was, I am. And, and the reason why that statement is incredible is, is a couple key reasons. Number one, he's saying that he existed before Abraham, which is impossible if you're just a human. Like, that's just the obvious conclusion. So that's remarkable in and of itself. Now, if he, if he said no more, if he just says, I was before Abraham, right? Maybe he's really old. Maybe he's some different kind of human. Like, you could kind of imagine some sci-fi type stuff that, wow, he's very different. He existed a long time ago. He's really old, but he looks young. That's weird. But then he finishes this remarkable statement with a truth that was not misunderstood by his audience. He said, before Abraham was, I am. Period. No predicate. No qualifications around I am. And, and when you think about even that just grammatically, like anyone can say, we can say I am, but it always has a predicate or always has a qualifications. I am because. Or I am here now but won't always be here right to say i am and let that hang is a statement that only someone who has always existed and will always exist can and doesn't have a cause or a beginning can make it's a statement of ultimate being that in the past God says, I am. In the present, God says, I am. In the future, God says, I am. Before Abraham was, I am. It would have also brought to mind Moses, who when he was talking with God, said, what, sh what name shall I give the people to let them know who is talking to me? And God says, in Exodus chapter 3, verse 14, I am who I am. Tell them I am has sent you. Jesus is very clearly connecting himself to God. They immediately picked up stones. And they're starting to chuck it at him. Then it says he's hidden. Who knows? Did he disappear? Was he just really fast? I don't know. We don't know. It doesn't say. He got out of it. But his point was very clear. He says, he is God. And, and, and if Jesus is God, he has the power, he has the authority. And, and to bring it back to that paradox. And I know people, kids are getting antsy. I feel it in here. <laughs> to bring it back to that paradox, what we need for our slavery to disobedience is obedience we don't have it to solve our problem but jesus points to himself as the one who solves that paradox and in verse 36 we didn't read it before but i'm gonna read it now so so let me just backtrack for a second you will know the truth the truth will set you free how will we become free Jesus says, truly I tell you, everyone who commits sin is a slave of sin. Skip down to verse 36. So if the Son, if the Son sets you free, you really will be free. He's pointing to himself. And as he unpacks the layers of who he truly is, he's God himself 
with all the power and all the authority of God, if that Son of God sets you free, you will be free indeed. How does he do that? How does he do that? He goes to the cross. His whole purpose in coming down from his rightful position of authority to enter into our world as human flesh is so that he could accomplish the work on the cross of dying for our sins. So that our sins don't have to be, we don't have to suffer, we don't have to suffer the consequences, the full eternal consequences of our sin are placed on Jesus at the cross. So that he lived a perfect life in obedience. We, we talk about obedience is, is needed for, to, as a solution to slavery to obedience. That obedience is not ours. That obedience is, is Christ's obedience. He lived a perfect life with his father. He did the will of the father perfectly so that when he died on the cross, he didn't die for his own sins. He died for our sins. Takes upon our sins and our muck and our guilt and our disobedience and gives us his obedience that by faith, God sees us through the lens of Jesus' obedience. That's the way that he restores our relationship to the Father in heaven so that it's not our obedience that gets us there. It's Jesus' obedience. And the thing that connects us to Jesus' obedience is faith. It's belief. So when Jesus says, you must continue in his word, and then you will know the truth, and then you will be free, continuing in the word means continuing in the truth of who Jesus is, not just his teachings on earth, but his whole body of work, the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus, continuing in that work as we apply that truth to every aspect of our lives, we are set free. And we're set free in a way that we know that the confidence of our salvation is not based on our obedience, but based on Christ's obedience. And it frees us from guilt because the reality is that life looks like this, ups and downs. It looks like my journal. I starts and stops. And if we understand that our, our performance is not what guarantees our assurance of, of salvation, that it's Jesus' performance, then we have hope. We have, we have assurance because Jesus did it perfectly and he demonstrated his love for us so that we would have a relationship with the Father. And this works its way out practically. We have this assurance based on Christ, but we also have real life transformation here and now as we apply that truth to our lives so that if we struggle with anger, we can look at our anger and say, you know what? I know this is a sin, but I know that Jesus died for that sin. I don't have to redefine it. I don't have to minimize it. I don't have to try to conquer it in my own strength. I don't have to despair of it, but I can release it to the Son who has set me free. And I can receive from the Son real help. And it's that process that we walk through day by day. Yes, I've sinned. Lord, I believe your blood is enough. I release it back to you and I receive from you help to walk, to see that you are good, to see that your ways are best. 
and to continue to walk in obedience. And, it, you know, life transformation happens gradually. It doesn't usually happen instantaneously. Usually it's like, oh, you look back five years, you realize 10 years, you realize 15 years, you realize my life looks different as you walk with Jesus because Jesus is the one who initiated, Jesus is the one who conquered, Jesus is the one who's given you the freedom to begin to walk in that and not trust in your failures, your momentary failures, but to trust in the perfect work of Jesus Christ. If the Son has set you free, you really will be free. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you that we can call you Father. We thank you that because of your son's sacrifice, you hear our words, you hear our prayers. We hear your words. You have given us eyes to see your beauty, eyes to see the beauty of the way you've designed us and created us to live a life of love. And so, Lord, we, we ask, Lord, for those of us who have struggled with trying to redefine sin, trying to minimize it, trying to conquer it in our own strength, or despairing of sin, Father, would you empower us to release it to you, to believe, Lord, that your death on the cross was enough to cover all of our sins, past, present, and future. Lord, to give it to you and believe.